Welcome to Moments in Leadership. Before I get going with today's episode, there are a few things I want to highlight, especially as the podcast gains popularity. First, as much as I like a good old-fashioned F-bomb, I've taken to beeping them out lately. I want guests to be as authentic as possible, so I have a no-rules rule, but I also have to consider that these leaders will one day retire, and they may end up in some sort of line of work that could be more, I don't know how to put this, verbally conservative. So I've decided for now to beep out the F-bombs, but leave all the other words in there because, well, everyone hears them or uses them on a day-to-day basis anyway. So next, I just want to say that I have plans to widen and diversify the future guests. Right now, I'm following this skinny trail that kind of leads me uh, from guest to guest and just asking them for introductions. And recently, those introductions have been leading me to, well, naturally Marines. But I'm working hard to bring in more senior enlisted leaders and I've been successful in lining up a few good interviews coming up this summer. I'm also working to connect with more senior leaders in the other branches and across job functions. I've recently gotten a retired JAG general officer to have an interview with me this summer, and I'm also networking around to try to get a sub-community flag officer. I'll tell you, shipboard leadership and specifically sub-leadership just really fascinates me. Also, the special operations community has been harder for me to network into, but I am actually making some progress there as well. Finally, I'll be working to get some female leaders on as well. I'm particularly interested in connecting with some senior staff NCOs and GO female leaders from all the branches. But if anyone has any connections to some of the junior female leaders in the combat arms MOSs, I'd really like to explore some episodes with them so that they can share their unique perspectives on leading as well. Okay, so back to this episode. I want to get this out up front is that we discuss Force Design 2030 on this episode. Personally, look, I'm a fan of Force Design 2030. And I also believe that changing the Marine Corps to meet our pacing threats is imperative. My guest today is Lieutenant General Karsten Heckel, who currently serves as the Commanding General Marine Corps Combat Development Command and Deputy Commandant for Combat Development and Integration. While I could have used this interview for asking pointed questions about the details of Force Design 2030, and many people may question why I didn't ask harder questions or more pointed questions, you know, this is a podcast about leadership and as such, I really tried to keep the questions focused on leadership through the lens of Force Design 2030 as it continues to take shape. However, Lieutenant General Heckel is a refreshingly unfiltered general officer. In fact, I wish that I had the opportunity to work for him during my career. So while my questions were on leadership, he does spend quite a bit of time explaining his perspectives on Force Design 2030. So it's something that anyone interested in the direction of the Marine Corps is not going to want to miss, and especially if you're a critic. He's from Stone Mountain, Georgia. He's a graduate of Georgia State University, and he was commissioned in April of 1988, and then he was designated as an unrestricted naval aviator in September of 1990. As a CH-43 Echo frog pilot, Lieutenant General Heckel has deployed with both the Marine Medium Helicopter Squadron, or HMM-365, and HMM-263, and has also served as a CH-46 Echo instructor and division head at Marine Aviation Weapons and Tactics Squadron 1, or MOTS-1, in Yuma, Arizona. Additionally, he was assigned as one of the initial cadre of pilots with Marine Medium Tilt Rotor Training Squadron 204, or VMMT-204. Lieutenant General Heckel commanded the Golden Eagles of Marine Medium Tilt Rotor Squadron 162, which also included a combat tour to Iraq in in 2008. He also commanded MOTS-1 in 2010. From June of 2018 to July of 2020, he served as the Commanding General's 2nd Marine Aircraft Wing and subsequently assumed command of 1MEF, or 1st Marine Expeditionary Force, through September of 2021. 
His staff assignments included CH-43 Echo and MV-22 Requirements Officer, Headquarters Marine Corps Aviation Department in Washington, D.C., the J-3 Director of Operations, United States Forces Afghanistan in Kabul, Senior Military Assistant and Marine Aide to the Secretary of the Navy, Assistant Deputy Commandant for Aviation, Headquarters Marine Corps Aviation Department in Washington, D.C., Chief of Staff, Naval Striking and Support Forces, NATO in Lisbon, Portugal. Lieutenant General Heckel is also a distinguished graduate of Amphibious Warfare School and the Naval War College. So with that, Lieutenant General Heckel, welcome to Moments in Leadership. Thanks, David. Glad to be here with you today. It's interesting when I interview uh, an aviator, I like to start with another question than my standard first question, which is, uh, what is your call sign, sir, and and why is it Hazel? My call sign is Hazel. And uh, you may be old enough, but do you remember the show back in the 50s and the 60s? Shirley Booth played a maid called Hazel and she worked for the Busbys, Mr. B. So I don't recall ever seeing it, but I, I definitely recognize the, the names that you just used. You can find it on cable every now and then, you know, when they go all nostalgic and stuff. But so I'm brand new in uh, HMM 365, the Blue Knights, right after Desert Storm. And I'm a lieutenant. So I'm the boot. And that's back in the day when, you know, the boots were treated like boots. And uh, I had every crappy job in the squadron to include soda mess officers. So we would. Uh, yeah, I would sell stuff and raise money for flowers for babies and stuff. And one day, some of the guys came in and somebody put a burrito in the microwave, a, a microwave, by the way, that I bought with my own money to finance, to get thing going. And they'd blown this, this burrito up in the microwave and I lost my ever loving mind and blew up on all these captains. And, you know, I was doing that with all due respect, which means you're about to be disrespected, you know, and I'm like, you know, you're a bunch of, bunch of pigs and your mother doesn't work here. And put a sign on the microwave and one of the guys kind of stood up and said, man, he's like a 200 pound pissed off version of that maid. You remember? And so until then they'd been calling me bull. Cause I look like bull from night court, which I thought was great. Right. What a great one syllable, you know, bull, bull flight check-in two, three, four. Great. Right. Mm-hmm. Hazel. No, that, you know, and then, and then of course the next weekend we're at a party and my wife proceeds to climb on top of my casket with a pneumatic nail gun. Oh, you think that's bad? You ought to see him at home. And I'm like, oh my God. Oh so, boy. Yeah. So never got away. And now it's now it's stuck. It's a good one. Well, thanks for that quick story. And so I think one of the one of the most fascinating things that I've discovered doing this podcast is just hearing about how a three-star general started out in the Marine Corps. I mean, everybody starts out as an E1 or an O1, right? But only one percent of it make it to your level or, or to a force level, force level sergeant major. I mean, that's, you know, a 30, 40 year career. So I'd love to start the interview out by you telling me some stories that you remember about the first five years of your career that you look back on as crystallizing moments, you know, those, those aha moments that have just stayed with you forever. That's a great point. You know, for those that believe in higher powers, I'm, you know, I'm a Christian and it kind of guides a lot of what I do, although you'll never know it by how I drop the F-bombs every now and then. But I believe there's a, per- a reason things happen. And I just was, I have been blessed my whole career to be exposed to just magnificent people, en- enlisted and officer. I mean, I could, I could spend four hours, David, talking to you about lessons I've learned from Gunnery Sergeant Tim Zilmer or Captain Bob Hedlund, or I could go on and on. But in my first five years, I was just exposed to one great leader after another, and then more. You know, I, I worked for a guy named Keith Stalder. You know, I mean, you know, retired three star. So I, I think for me, it was just being in a in units that were really good. Not, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, not, not in the parochial sense. I mean, really good. They just did everything well, and I didn't realize it at the time because I was just a young lieutenant and I was just absorbing it. 
but it constructed my DNA of who I would be as a Marine officer and certainly as an aviator. There are no shortcuts. There is only one way to do things, and there is never a right way to do the wrong thing. Those people left fingerprints all over me. I'll give you a for instance. Gunny Tim Zilmer, 7041 Ops Chief, had a huge influence on me as a young lieutenant working in ops and writing the flight schedule. We started playing golf together on weekends because the guy was just amazing. Couldn't drive the ball 200 yards, had like a three handicap. When he got within 150 meters of the pin, it was done, game over. And we played every Saturday together. And I would pick him up at base housing at New River and we'd drive together. And I just adored the ground the man walked on. Smoked like a sieve, uh, you know. And one day I just got a little too comfortable. And, uh, and by the way, he and I have stayed in, in, in contact. Uh, we were on like the, the ninth green and I called him Tim. And he walked over to me and he said, sir, you know how much I respect you. You know how much I like you. He goes, don't ever f- call me Tim again. It's either gunnery sergeant. And I'm like, yeah, I was like, oh my God, I've, I've been counseled. I'm like, yes, gunnery sergeant. So, uh, and then he taught me how to be uh, an ops officer. Uh, I did an after action from a, a Tunisian Fiblex, and I was so proud of it. And he pulled me aside and said, this is a piece of shit. He showed me how to do it the right way. And I've done it that way. It was my measure of how I would do work for, from then on was the Gunny Tim Zomer measure. So we would be here. I would spend the rest of your show t- answering that question. It's all the people that I was exposed to in a unit that was just very, very tight my first five years in the fleet. And, uh, and it, it made me who I ended up being as a Marine. I'm wondering if with that success story of having met a really influential Marine in the first part of your career, could you take the other end of the spectrum on that and tell me about a time where you saw a, a failure in leadership early on in your career and, and how much that resonated with you or helped you develop your own leadership style that's stuck with you for 30 or 40 years? Well, oddly enough, so I was in HM, HMM 365 for almost five years. We you know, did, did multiple deployments. Marine expeditionary units deployed on ships, went into the Mediterranean Sea, got to go down off the coast of Somalia right after Black Hawk Down back in 94. On that second deployment, the unit was just, it had been built up over the years, but we were at a crescendo. It was the best unit I had ever been exposed to. And I, was, uh, and I got to be a part of it and I realized it. The CO, a guy named Gator Duncan, that squadron produced like four or five general officers. Oddly enough, the CO wasn't one. He had a falling out with a senior brain officer that kind of ended his career, but that unit was, was exceptional. In that mew, we had some very bad senior leadership that I was exposed to. Very bad. And what I got to see from the perspective of a young captain and, a, and again, a, a really, really good unit, you know, 365, the failure of leadership of this senior leader was accentuated, was amplified. Because here I was, and I watched like my 05 commander, right? The squadron commander and the battalion commander was a guy named Waldhauser. And the Mu Opso was a guy named Rich Mills. All these young lieutenant colonels made that unit function, and not just function, it excelled in spite of some of the failed leadership in the chain of command. That has never left me. And quite frankly, I remember at one point, Lieutenant Colonel Duncan, his call sign was Gator, uh, the CO of the squadron, had gotten off the ship in preparation for operations in Somalia. We were, we were preparing to conduct a non-combatant evacuation operation. This must have been 13th Mew? This was 26th Mew off the East Coast. Yep. So the West Coast hadn't gotten there yet because of the, you know, the, the vast distance of the Pacific. So we were, they pulled us through the Suez Canal, and, which back in then never happened, right? 
So we covered now, but Gator Duncan flew off the ship for a few days. And I remember noticing the void, right? It was weird, you know, as, as a captain. And I'm like, so that, that whole deployment, that whole experience with 365 and, and getting to watch really good leaders, young leaders, I mean, squadron and battalion commanders and mu opsos really just keep a unit excelling was just, you know, it's one of those things that, that settles up in your blood and, and sticks with you for the rest of your life. I love that story. And here's why, because you and I know this for listeners and leaders who haven't gone through the basic school, there's this what now lieutenant moment that we all go through when somebody says, hey, that the leader's gone, has been killed or whatever it is. And probably one of the most instructive and powerful and formative exercises that anybody goes through is, is having to step up and without any uh, warning. And it sounds like those experiences going up to the lieutenant colonel level when there is a vacuum created by leadership going away for whatever reason, and whether they were the good leaders or the bad leaders, how the good leaders, I mean, leadership abhors a vacuum and it just gets filled really fast. And, and I've always found, I think what you're saying is that when given the opportunity, when a, when a leader leaves, whether they're a good leader or a bad leader, it's like pulling your foot out of a bucket of water. It, that, that hole is just going to fill immediately. And it's always the good leaders that step up. It's never the bad leaders that step up and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to take over now. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that goes towards morale. I think, look, I, I think at, at any moment in anybody's career, they go through these cynical moments where they say, you know, damn it, Marine Corps, this, that, and the other thing. And, and you, you just think that the whole Marine Corps is just going to implode in on itself. And how can this organization exist with all this bad leadership? That doesn't happen. It just, that vacuum gets filled really quickly. So that, that's why I love that story. It resonates with me so much. And I know it will resonate with young leaders because Things always change. 18 months, something, whatever. If you're in a bad situation, it's going to change in 18 months. Either Absolutely. you're going to leave or, or the person's going to leave. And then you'll have your opportunity <laughs> That's to exactly step up. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And even more so now, I think even, and I know we're going to talk about force design a little bit later, but there's even a, a more amplified opportunity now for leaders to be stepping up. And, and, and we'll get into that in due time. But one of the things I've learned through both just being friends with people who are senior officers now and, and then interviewing them is, for the most part, senior leaders are very, very humble about themselves. And, and I understand why. But I'm wondering if you can step out of that mold for a second and tell me about the very first time that you, as a leader, looked in the mirror and you're like, I'm proud of myself for that. Mm, that's a tough one. And I, I stay in touch with a lot of Marines that I've served with over the years. But, you know, I, I will just start off with saying that, you know, I am here only because so, so many great Marines, like, again, like Gunny, Tim Zilmer, you know, I could name a million of them, hauled my big fat ass up on their shoulders and carried me here. So, being proud of something, I think I would probably have to say, so I, I had command of the second uh, V-22 squadron in the Marine Corps, uh, VMM-162. You know, those early days, we it was hard. You know, we this this wasn't a new, it, it wasn't just a new airplane, right, David? I mean, it's, we went, it was tilt rotor flight. So it's not helicopters, it's not fixed wing, it's this whole new thing that we had to figure out. We were the second behind Paul Rock at 263, but we were all kind of doing our own thing trying to figure out how to operate this aircraft, right? And I was super, super proud of what my squadron had done. And so I guess I'll, by default, will take some credit for it. But I think what I did was I gave my people like my OPSO, Jeff Hogan, my XO, and my AM, all, all the people in my squadron, I gave them the room to make decisions and not be afraid to fail. And so the squadron did a lot of really innovative things. And so I guess it was right right before we were deploying home after a successful seven-month combat deployment through the summer months. It went from uh, basically March to October. 
and the airplane did magnificently only because it was being carried on the shoulders of my Marines. As we prepared to redeploy home, I remember we were in Kuwait and we were lining up in the, you know, in our groups. And I just looked at these Marines and how happy they were and proud they were. And, and it made me feel good that I had just simply given them the room to explore and, and, you know, innovate and try new things and not be afraid to fail. And, uh, and they did that. And the payoff was, was tremendous. So I think there's a balance. And I, I hear this a lot when I talk to people about, I'm using this term, setting the conditions for success in a command or, or in any position of leadership that you're in. You could be a fire team leader. You could be a platoon commander. You're leading, right? If there's two Marines, somebody's in charge kind of thing. And just setting the conditions for success is one of the high level topics that people will talk about when they say something has done, gone really well in a commander in their, in their career. And I'm wondering if we can just dig in on that a little bit, because how can you give some advice to a, to an emerging leader, an NCO or a company grade officer who wants to set the conditions for success with their unit, but has to balance that with, I want to give somebody room to fail, but as the probability of failure increases, so does the probability of my career ending. And General Alfred said in our last interview that one of the most successful things he did was at some level, leaders have to stop leading with the concern about their career and start leading like it's going to be their last job. And I'm wondering if you can help give some young leaders the confidence in, in having that mindset when they kind of do have to worry about it a little bit more than, say, a lieutenant colonel who's pretty close to 20. And Yeah. So look, I have seen Marines in my career that all they wanted to do was get promoted, right? Mm-hmm. I never, and I think most Marines never intend to make a career out of the Marine Corps. I didn't. I was going to do my time and, you know, and I uh, thought it was an obligation to serve your country and then get, move on. And when you run into those, you, you, you pick up on it pretty quick. They have, a, they have a very distinct odor. You can sense who they are. I will simply say that there's a, when listening to you just talk, David, a million things rush into my head and overwhelm my thoughts. So I'll just say, you know, by, by DNA, I'm a, I'm a frog pilot. So I'm a, I'm a very blunt instrument, a dumb animal, whatever you want to call me. But there are two kinds of leaders in the world. Those that lead out of, they're, they're fearful leaders and there's hopeful leaders. The fearful leaders, there is just suspicion and distrust. And the hopeful leader is the complete opposite, right? Hopeful and trustful. But trust is born of two important things, and this is how you set the environment. It's born of integrity and competence is what I've learned. And so if, you're, if your people that work for you trust you and know that you have their back, they'll do anything for you, and they'll do anything to make the mission and that unit be successful. So that's the environment you have to build, and they need to see that in action. It can't just be you talking, and I'll give a quick example on that. And then when somebody does fail and it's an honest mistake or an honest failure, you know, it's, it's Roosevelt's man in the ring, right? Mm-hmm. That should be okay. It must be okay. If not rewarded, right? So when I had the second squadron, we flew out to Miramar from Jacksonville for a debt to train in the, in the desert and to help the FAA establish regulations on how this new tilt rotor thing is going to operate in this very congested uh, airspace in San Diego. My guys were experimenting with our technique of, we called it a direct no hover, the brownout created by V-22 landing the aircraft without seeing the ground. And this is in 2007. The automation was not where it is in the airplane now. It's Nowadays, it's even better. We had a nose wheel hit a bomb crater in the Yuma Ranges in the 2507 North, and it subsequently collapsed on the tarmac. So you can imagine what a big, and of course, social media, people, all the Marines with, it's at Yuma, it's at MCS Yuma. My commander so I'm out there as, as, the, as the CO of 162. My commander was 
kind of putting the heat to me to, to reevaluate what I was doing. And I refused. I knew it was the right thing to do. We were, we were months away from a combat deployment and I knew what needed to be done. And uh, I'll never f- forget being on my cell phone in a parking lot in Miramar and trying to defend myself. And then he backed me, but he, he had the blowtorches to my feet, man. I mean, I was like, okay. And it almost made me second guess. And then, then the next day we were supposed to fly to Yuma and I was going to talk to all the MOTS instructors, the Marine Aviation Weapons and Tactics Squadron 1 instructors. And the squadron was rattled after that nose wheel thing. And my opso came to me and he goes, hey, sir, are we going to cancel the thing tomorrow? And I said, absolutely not. We're going to get an airplane. You're going to go fly out and pick up the stuff you and you're going to drop me off. Everything's normal. And within a day, the squadron was back to complete normal ops. Yeah. So that's a great story. And it ties in very nicely with uh, Major General Dale Alford, who is my previous guest a couple of weeks ago. He told the story, sir, and I just got to tell it again real quick for people who haven't heard the episode, but he tells a quick story about how there was a, an infantry maneuver range somewhere in Camp Lejeune and it had a bunch of trees in it. And I know, I know this story. Okay. So they were, they were walking, <laughs> then I'll tell it quickly, but they were walking through the woods and everybody's supposed to have their weapons pointed straight in front of them. Or some, some Marine turns to the side, fired around, and it, it, it hit another Marine, not fatally. And somebody came out and said to him, and what happened and everything. And, and he said, this is what happened. He said, great. And he said, can I keep training? And, and whoever was came out to the range said, yeah, you can keep training. I got four or five emails after that story saying, hey, that's a great story to hear from Lieutenant General Alfred back from when he was a captain in the 90s. That would never happen today. If something like that on a range ever happened today, it would be shut down, investigations, everything. No lieutenant would ever be allowed to continue on with the training today. And then, you know, given back to your nose wheel comment, are there some things that emerging leaders should be looking at in where maybe get back to the medium on that. Like maybe the pendulum has swung too far to the left or right on, on overreaction to training accidents. Do you think that there's some room for, for leaders to assume some risk and do like your CEO did, which was we're going to, and you did, which is we're going to keep flying. I took the first Marine expeditionary force the day after the AAV mishap and mm-hmm. we lost eight Marines and a sailor, right? That, that was a leadership failure at various levels. Mm-hmm. I had a different interpretation of where that responsibility stopped, but it was a leadership failure. So don't, I tell that to say this, you do have a responsibility to make sure things are being done right. And that's why I made that comment about there's only one way to do the right thing, right? It's the right way. There's only one way. That clearly didn't happen in this case. And, and quite honestly, in my career, David, as an aviator, you know, the Morana accident and, you know, we, we, we are exposed as aviators throughout our careers, unfortunately, to mishaps. And, and 99% of the time, it's human error. Somewhere in the chain messed up. So I don't want to let anybody off the hook, but here at the end of the day, and that story about Dale is great. Uh, and I've heard it before, you know, I've known Dale for 40 years and it does bring up a, a really good point. That is, we're all about killing our nation's adversaries and breaking all their shit. And we need to do it in the most violent, cost-effective means possible for the American taxpayer. That doesn't happen by being tentative or hesitant to do training that yes, may be dangerous. But what I would tell the leaders is simply make sure you've done your homework, make sure that you are not needlessly jeopardizing anyone's safety in any shape, form, or fashion. That's all. Because I, I think, and this, this is coming from having been a wing commander and a MEF commander, we got some leaders out there right now, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you from firsthand experience, that are definitely the caliber of what Dale Offer told you about, the, 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 the leader that Dale had that said, get back to training. Even with mine back in, in 07, my, my boss said, okay, keep going. Once I had adequately explained to him all the measures I was taking to ensure nothing would happen, it did happen in spite of all that. 
So that to me, in my head, then as an O5 commander, that was an honest mistake. And I'm not going to stop. I think we still have leaders out there of that caliber that, that, but you're, you're definitely onto something. We are, I think social media, David has changed a lot of that. Oddly enough, here we're on a podcast. You know, I mean, I think it, it over amplifies to some degree. So I would simply say that if you've, if you've set the conditions and your people are trained and you've done all the things that you know, you need to do, there's no reason to stop training. Does that mean mishaps aren't going to happen? No way. Keith Stalder told me a long time ago, if you want zero mishap rates flying airplanes, stop flying airplanes. I agree with that. And everybody listening to this podcast who's a leader at any level in the military needs to go back and listen to that last three or four minutes again and really let that sink in. And and this isn't my venue to tell people how to be great leaders, but I am going to take a little bit of, of license here because this is my podcast and I'm going to just say this. If you're listening to this podcast and you're a leader in the military, you need to go be that leader that General Heckle just described because our core and our, our nation depends on those leaders and, and we cannot keep trending off into the risk management zone and the, Hey, if you want zero mishaps, just stop flying. We just, we just can't have that. You're right, sir. Our nation depends on us to exercise extreme violence when needed. And we cannot do that if we are not training in a way that's, that's meaningfully dangerous. And especially our nation's Marine Corps, we are the nation's crisis response force of choice. And what that means is, you know, I grew up on amphibs, right? I grew up on MUSE doing the very things, you know, doing the crisis response, doing the NEOs, the non-combatant evacuations operations. You know, you want a great read that almost would, would you would think you're reading a trailer of a movie. Operation Eastern Exit from Mogadishu in, this, in January of 1991. My, there is an unclassified after action on that that I need to send you, David, just to get your reaction. The executive summary is breathtaking, but it's dangerous at night goggles, unbriefed aerial refueling of 53s over the middle of the ocean twice. They put on the centerline jump seats in the 53 Echoes, carrying 55 Marines. And by the time they got there, literally looters were coming over the walls of the of the embassy. They got there in a nick of time. So the point is, there was no time to wait. There was no time to hem-haw. There was no time to debate. You had to move and move quickly. But guess what? The Marines across the board, both the ground and the aviators, were trained. They were proficient and they were ready to execute and they did it. Please do send me that. I, I'd like to link to it in the show notes, specifically because I'm a Somalia veteran and I've never read that. Oh, great. I'll send it to you. I do agree. I think one of the things that leaders need to really think about, and, and I don't think you can really train to this, sir. I think you just need to think about how you will react in the future when this presents itself, because this decision will present itself to every single Marine who's in a leadership role at some point in their career, which is you have to make a decision that you haven't been trained for, and you're just going to have to use your instinct and rely on your training and everything that you've learned to make a call. There's always going to be gray area calls, and you just need to look at it and say, what is the probability of this causing, am I taking unnecessary risk? Like you said before, are you going out there and, and taking stupid risks? You don't want to do that. But sometimes you just need to look at things and say, hey, am I operating at the fringe of this? Absolutely. But we have to because the operation and the mission calls for it. Everybody's going to have to do it. I did it, sir. I know you did it. That's you, right. I'm That's sure right. you did it in the aviation yeah. community. So, yeah. And again, again, I go back to my comment that, you know, I'm a fairly, you know, blunt instrument, but there's policy, you know, I'll screw with policy all day. There's bad policy. I'll completely disregard it. There's orders and directives. I'm a little more reluctant to be, uh, but I will look at all of those with with a scrutinizing eyeball. And then there's the law. I will never, ever, ever, ever under any condition break the law. I've taken a, an oath to the Constitution 
to not do that. So I would just say for leaders to think think through, you know, what's inhibiting them training or whatever. Is it policy? If there's a policy issue, bring it up. Bring it up with your leadership. Get it fixed. Bad policy is is a disease, and you got to be aware of it, especially as a, as a leader. Well, that's that is the classic definition and differentiation between the fearful leader and the hopeful leader, right? right because the you. fearful leader will never challenge those policies, will never, never operate in the gray area, and they will just be managing to their career. The hopeful leader will say, I'm hopeful about this. I am confident in my decision-making. I've and never I made that linkage, the, David, but you're spot on. Yeah, it's, it's the assessment of risk. It's, yep. and, and I don't know if we do a really good job talking about this early on in training for Marines, so I'll just quickly say it, but Everybody needs to understand that there's a huge definition difference between possibility and probability. Right. That's right. Is it, is it possible that if you load Willie Pete and HE together in an ammunition trailer that something bad could happen? Absolutely. Possibility of it? Probably zero. But we have this policy that we can't put those things together or fuses. There's all kinds of things that you can't put together in the same trailer. I don't know. It's a policy. Yep. I have challenged it. I'm out now, so I can say this. I have broken that rule <laughs> as an artilleryman a number of different times and in the LAR community. But yeah, so we'll, we'll move on from that before I get um, called back on active duty and court martial for anything. So good luck with that. Yeah. I'll use another example, though. So I'm, I'm a young lieutenant. I'm trying to become an aircraft commander in a frog. And my group commander is a guy named Fred McCorkle, you know, famous aviator, retired three-star, one of the most decorated aviators we have on the record books. And here's First Lieutenant Heckle flying with Colonel Fred McCorkle. So you can imagine I was utterly petrified. This is back in the days when we were really stupid about flying at night with goggles. So I didn't have enough hours, low light time, to wear goggles in low light. So I'm out trying to fly around unaided. So I mean, think about, think about that statement. Hey, it's too dark. Take the goggles off. <sighs> Why not just put a blindfold around your eyeballs? Okay. Well, we're... McCorkle and I were trying to get into this airfield called Oak Grove, and we could not see it. All of a sudden, I kind of see McCorkle fitting around the cockpit, and I look over, and he's he's snapped a set of goggles on. I'm like, oh, you can't do that. That's breaking the rules. Within five seconds, he finds Oak Grove. We fly in, we land, and he takes the goggles off. And he ba- we sat there on the on the ground for about five minutes, and he just told me, that's where I had my first exposure to, hey, that, yeah, that's an op-nav instruction, so it was technically an order, but he said it's stupid. He goes, we, our own policy orders and directions have not caught up to technology and we're going to kill somebody because we're stupid. And I was like, wow. So it was pretty amazing. And then he proceeded to torture me for the next two hours. <laughs> of course, because that's how, it, that's how it goes in your community. You know, great, great segue, sir. I'm wondering if you can share with listeners a story from your past where you actually did something wrong. And can you talk about, okay, I, I messed this up. I did this wrong how it was handled by your CO because you're a three-star general. So if you did something wrong, something there was some great leadership above you that said, hey, you did this wrong, but didn't blow torch your feet, as you like to say. Yeah, I am pretty sure I have messed up a lot of stuff in my life. One of the things that stuck with me, and it kind of ties into the whole discussion we've been having, but again, I'm in 365, I'm brand new. And one of the other crappy little jobs I had was I was the sorts officer. Remember sorts, David? Status of Resources and Training System, the original version of DERS, right? Defense Readiness Reporting System. You had to go to an Air Force school. And, and so I did this, and I just told you the squadron, they just come up from Desert Storm, so they'd shed all their people. All the, the airplanes were in horrible condition. And essentially, the squadron was on its ass. Well, that's how I reported it. <laughs> I, I honestly reported the numbers. 
I kind of got my ass chewed. But McCorkle, the group commander, was great about it. Called me over and and told me that it didn't stop us from changing the report. But um, he said, "No, you're you know you're you're going to be okay." So I mean, I, I didn't really screw anything up there. I did I did the honest thing. I, as far as screwing something up, if I had to like to do over again, this is not going to be helpful at all. But so I was in VMMT two hundred four when we were standing up the V twenty two. And we had a couple of really bad accidents back in 2000. We had Marana, lost 19 Marines. Um, and then we had another one. That was in April. Then we had another one in December and we lost four more Marines. And so the future for the V-22 was going to be delayed. And there was a hardcore group of folks that stayed there and got it right. And they deserve all the credit for what the V-22 is today. Every bit of it. And I don't deserve any because I, I basically escaped the unit. Even though General Jones at the time, the commandant had said nobody is allowed to leave. I had a CO that got me out of there, who I still stay in touch with, so that I could go back to a unit and deploy. I, I just so I guess I'm a little disappointed in myself when I look back on that that I didn't stick it out. But every time I saw a, a squadron taxiing out to get on board the ship and go deploy, I just felt like my guts were being ripped out. And I'm like, I I can't do this. I gotta so the, for the first time in my life, I had to admit that I had failed at something, I guess. Uh, it was a hard thing to do. I don't know. Looking back, I don't know that I would change that because I ended up going to to unit and deploying and going to combat. But it was a hard thing, and and I've and I and I often, if it's one thing I look back on, I and I ask if I made the right decision. So I'm sitting here in Alexandria, Virginia, looking out my window, and I just saw two V-22s from HMX one fly down the Potomac River. So I don't know if it was really a failure or it kind of may, maybe that story goes back to what we were saying before, like leadership, you pull your foot out of a bucket of water and, and maybe feel bad that you shouldn't have left the unit at the time. But the people that you set the conditions for success and shaped leaders underneath you, somebody came in and you said there was a lot of hardcore people that stayed and made it happen. That sort of thing doesn't happen if the leader, you wasn't doing your job and setting the conditions for their success previously. So yeah, I mean, if I did contribute in any way, that, that would be some solace. But yeah, there were some good people that stayed there and did a lot of heavy lifting and a lot of hard work. And and again, the, the airplane you saw just flying down the Potomac is why. Another way to ask the question is because I just I just think there's such valuable leadership lessons to be learned by hearing about mistakes and then how they were handled was you know that that old saying there. But for the grace of God, walk I. Did you ever see something happen where you said, "Thank God that wasn't me," and maybe you can turn that story into a formative experience? that leaders could apply to their future leadership style? Well, you know, in aviation, those opportunities, those things happen all the time. Uh, we always say uh, any naval aviator of, of any flavor, regardless of type model series, I guarantee you has, had, has, has just been moments away from a class alpha mishap and either killing themselves or killing somebody else or both. So I'll use, I, I'm going to go to an aviation example. We, I was on my, it was that second deployment back in 94. And a 53 had lost a main rotor gearbox in Spain. And we were pier side in a place called Almeria, Spain. And we needed to move. It was going to take, it was going to take weeks to get this airplane out of the field. So the ship was going to have to leave the port. And I had been asked quickly to go up and fire up a frog and load up all this gear and publications and equipment and fly it out to the site. So I got this false sense of urgency, you know, because sunset was coming. And so I cut a corner on my load comp. You know, we do a load computation every time before we take off to make sure we have power and for the ambient conditions, et cetera. And I absolutely gun decked this thing because you know, I was overconfident in myself, right? You know, I was a W, I was a weapons attachments instructor. You know, I thought I was, you know, I was at that point in my career where I was dangerous, right? Because I thought too much of myself and didn't have enough experience 
to realize that I wasn't all that. And so we went up. I had a young lieutenant flying with me. I was a captain. We strap in. The ship is pier side. So we, the winds were not good. And I mm. completely blew that off too. Picked up, slid off the deck edge and immediately started sinking towards the water. And the aircraft was out of power. The flight deck was, that was LPH back then. It was 50 feet off the water. I'm in a port. So there's, there's other ships. There's, there's yet, you know, there's piers. And I did everything you have to do in a frog, you know, 15 degree right yaw, max power, emergency throttle. At about 15 feet, that aircraft hit ground effect and she just flew right out. Oh, wow. And, and so I thought to myself, and of course, my poor lieutenant's flying with me. He's about to shit his pants. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, okay. And that left a lasting impression on Captain WTI Heckle, right? It was a dose of humility, uh, a dose of reality. And I think, I think the good Lord gave me a wake up call and I've, I never forgot it after that. Two follow on questions from that. That lieutenant must have been scared shitless, but I'm also thinking you've got crew chiefs in the back. Oh, yeah. Yep. And so, so how does Captain Heckle now, every, everything's fine. You obviously, you didn't crash, right? But you've got these two Marines in the back that I know they're on ICS, so they, they probably hear you talking and, they, and they, he, they hear everything and there's nothing they can do. You land. How do you debrief and look at those two enlisted Marines and say, I f- up and I put your lives, I'm sorry. And then how do you turn that into a learning experience? Because I think if more officers showed some humility post making a mistake and, and looked at Marines and say like, hey, I, I didn't make the best decision there. Does anybody have any input? Here's my perspective on it. I don't know if a lot of that goes on and maybe more of it should. Absolutely. I was flying my crew. I only had a crew chief because we were flying day and I, his name was Corporal Cole. He got out of the record, was a fantastic crew chief. But so listen to what Corporal Cole told, told Captain Echo when we landed in Almeria. He blamed himself. And I'm like, are you f- kidding me? He's like, well, sorry, uh, I was the one that you know came down and told you in the ready room that we needed to hurry. And I'm like, no, 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 no. So my lesson from Corporal Cole was we had briefed and he asked me, he, he asked about the load comp and I said, it's done. And so that, but for me, it was sitting down with Corporal Cole and explaining to him that, that I had basically gun decked the, the load comp. He was kind of stunned when I told him that we had a discussion, but I will tell you from a career of flying with the, your crew chief and your AO in the back, they're the voice in the back of your head. Mm-hmm. They have saved me more times than I can tell you. And, you know, in a crewed aircraft, they, they get an equal vote, right? So they can veto anything. If they say, hey, sir, I am not comfortable with that, it stops right there. So, but I, I will never forget that with Corporal Cole, just listening to him try to take the blame for me almost putting a frog in the water, right? I was like, typical Marine, right? Taking, and, and an NCO at that. I'm glad you shared that with everybody because that's a real life scenario. And uh, I think people can relate to that, especially anybody that's flown in a helicopter before. So you'll remember this, sir, because we were in around the same time. You remember the old blue fitness reports that we used to get? Oh yeah. Whereas if something wasn't marked to the right, you were basically a, a piece of shit. Right. They had that block called moral courage. Do you remember that? Yeah, sure And it was, it was that block that was always, it, there was n- nothing in writing on this, but the standard was that block was always marked non-observed unless it was a combat fitness That's report. Right. And I just wonder, I, I want to talk about moral courage a little bit because I think I've seen a lot of moral courage in my career that had nothing to do with combat. And I think there's a huge difference between battlefield courage and moral courage. Was there ever a moment in your career that you can think back on where you risked your career with a decision that required moral courage? Well, I totally agree with you, David. And, 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 you know, for aviators, a lot of times when you're flying an airplane in combat, you don't even know you're getting shot at. You know what I mean? Sure. I mean, we had a 53 comeback on our first, on my first deployment, right when Yugoslavia fell apart, we went up in the Adriatic Sea and uh, we were, do you remember flying? uh, We had relief flights going into Sarajevo. 
Yes. We were, we were up there to, to watch over those relief flights. Well, an Italian C-130 gets shot down. We go to the crash site, a 50, one of our 53s. They get back that night. You know, it was, the aircraft was destroyed. Everybody was dead. Two days later, we pulled this 53 out. It, it had bullet holes in the tail. <laughs> we oh, didn't wow. even notice. So, so to that, more, I guess I, I tell you that horribly long story to say that I've been exposed to more moral courage than I have anything else. And I agree with you. I've, I've seen that. You know, I referenced my earlier, our earlier discussion about that. You know the bad leadership and how you know Waldhauser and the other COs just kept the the Marine Expeditionary Unit really just flourishing. But I, so for me, that time when we had the nose wheel collapse, I, I felt like my boss was wanting me to stop, very right. much wanting me to stop. I just knew it wasn't the right thing, you know. And I, I've told myself a million times if I, you know if I got to be an O five commander, that'd be the pinnacle of anybody's career. So I was happy uh, if it ended there. But you know, I stuck to my guns there and. I, so I, I guess I had moral courage there. I will tell you one time where I saw, when I was uh, an instructor at Marine Aviation Weapons Tactics Squadron 1, I was out there from 96 to 99. Keith Stalder, retired three-star, was my first CO. One of the training evolutions we do is called AST-3, Assault Support Tactics 3. And it's rotorcraft. It's a huge mission. It used to go into downtown Phoenix from Yuma, which is a pretty good distance for a rotor wing. We would it simulated a non-combatant evacuation operation. We used this abandoned dog track. It's all done on NVGs, helicopters landing in this dog track with light poles. I mean, it's it's the training that you talked about earlier, right? Right. The real potentially dangerous, but everything's done to the nines, right? That's the mm-hmm. way MOTS one does everything. It's a great mission to get to fly, especially as an instructor. It's so much fun with the students. Well, apparently the night before we executed it, the students briefed the instructors. And the brief was horrible. We're like, and I'm, I'm a captain at the time. I'm like, and one of my guys is leading. And I'm like, oh, so the confirmation brief was terrible. So they go back to their BOQ, to the BOQ at Yuma and replan the whole mission huh. all night, not sleeping, not getting crew rest, right? Violation of rules. None of us knew this, but apparently Keith Stalder started randomly sending, he would like, ta- he'd go, hey, Hazel. Tonight, before you go home, I want you to drive through the through the BOQ and make sure that the students are getting crew rest. So apparently, Stalder did that that night. One of the instructors goes over, sees all the students planning, you know, redoing the brief. So the next day, we come in and they give the brief, the, the new brief, and it's fantastic. It's the best best brief I've seen in four classes. I'm like, wow. Keith Stalder stands up at the front of the audience. He's the definition of fifty beats a minute, man. Never. Stands up, turns around. We're in Toad Hall, famous Toad Hall at Mots One. Turns around, looks at all the students and instructors, and goes, "AST." And bear in mind, we've been coordinating with the FAA. We've got air traffic controllers in towers at Phoenix and Goodyear. We've got hundreds of role players, literally thirty buses worth of role players downrange, all downrange. Stalder stands up, turns around, looks at the crowd, and goes, "AST three is canceled." Wow. And I'm like, "What the?" F- because they violated crew day. <laughs> wow. So it was a it was an absolute unequivocal mission failure. All because that policy was not followed. Yeah, because they went home and replanned the mission, didn't get rest, and were gonna coming in and gonna thought they were gonna hop in their airplanes tired and not rested and be dangerous and you know, be stupid and he canceled the whole thing, no matter what the cost. Well, that's that's some moral courage too, because you're gonna get heat for that. I mean, that's oh, yeah. Right? Oh, it's yeah. not just something like 
an infantry company commander decides they're not going to the rifle range one day. Right. I mean, that's got huge, huge implications. Everybody's going to find out about that. But I come back to that comment you made um, about 30 minutes ago, which was, you know, there, there's policies that can be interpreted and then there's laws that you will not break, but there's also policies that you will not break. Yep. And a leader has to understand that different, the, the, that, that probability thing. No, David, you bring, that's a great point. So to your point about danger stuff, right? So there is nothing more dangerous in an aircraft than a tired crew. It is dangerous. On my first deployment in 92, we were doing display determination, it's NATO exercise, with, and Turkey was involved. It was great exercise. I was in the starboard D holding, and all of a sudden we hear commotion going on. We had a, a very seasoned fueler back into a tail rotor of a Cobra, split the back of his head off. Oh. Killed him, right? You can imagine when they did the investigation, and this, and and I remember the guy always hustling. You know, he's a grape, right? He wears a grape jacket, right? Mm -hmm. Always hustling, dragging those big heavy fuel lines up out of the catwalk, fueling airplanes. He was having some trouble at home and had been staying up late at night, you know, writing letters and trying to use the Mars Grand to talk to his wife, and he was exhausted. Two of his rack mates that were shared his area knew that he was exhausted, and nobody did anything about it. That's what happened. He was distracted because he was exhausted and up on the flight deck doing what he'd done a million times and and backed his head right into a, a tail rotor of a Cobra. Oh, that's an awful story. I do think that it really plays back into that need for officers and enlisted NCOs to understand assessing risk. And it's that possibility, probability thing. Amen. And you just said that, you know, a tired crew is the most dangerous thing on an aircraft, right? Not only that, but you've got you know, up to 50 some souls in the back and depending on the aircraft. Right. And so your one decision to operate, or in this case, the, um, the ATS three or AST three. So in that decision by those limited number of pilots to break the crew rest could have really jeopardized passengers. It could have jeopardized all those role players and everything else. And, and that was not a good assessment of risk because as you stated, the, the probability of an accident happening must increase exponentially the more crew rest is busted by hours. Yeah. You know, no, you certainly do not want to be in the back of an aircraft with a tired pilot at the, at the controls. This is the conflict. Those students that had briefed it and did a poor job knew they did a poor job. We told them they wanted to succeed. So they went back and broke rules they know they weren't supposed to break because they wanted to succeed. Maybe we, as the instructors, when we told them, hey, your brief sucked, we should have given them an off ramp, right? But we didn't. Oh, that's a great point. It's kind of like, when we talk about China and competition and deterrence, you need to build in off-ramps, right? Or at least you need to try. Or otherwise, people will take the only route you've given them, which in this case was go back to the BOQ and replan the whole effing thing because we sucked. Our instructors told us we sucked. You know, MOTS 1 is, you know, you can't go to MOTS 1 and suck. You know, you're going to be, you know, so we didn't give them an off-ramp. We didn't say, okay, hey, we're going to delay tomorrow. Maybe we won't even fly it. Maybe we just execute. Maybe we cancel the whole flight part of it, but we make you guys come in tomorrow, replan it, and rebrief it. How about that? Right. We didn't do any of that. What an amazing lesson. I, I want to stay on this for a second because I, I think there's so many lessons there for people to learn. The whole thing about off-ramps, fascinating topic, because that, that's a requirement of senior leaders or a sign of a mature leader. Right. And this can be all the way down to sergeant, corporal level. It can be down to lieutenant level. It's this. Our culture is... Nothing's impossible. We can get anything we want to done. We are Marines. We're crying out loud. Right? Especially Marines. Right. We, we're the worst at it. It's that mentality of not falling out of a hike. 
it, it all boils down to that, right? I will not fail the mission. And but Dave, we never we never want to lose that, right? That's right. why Marines succeed in combat. We will we will do whatever is required to be. So to your point, I think that's where you're going. We got to figure out how to balance that, right? So so it takes the senior and mature leader to make sure that they understand that left to their own devices, <laughs> the younger leaders will put their head through a wall for mission accomplishment because that's all they've, since the day they went on their very first hike, failure is not an option. You don't fall out. Essentially, you know, not doing the mission is falling out of a hike, right? In my analogy here, which most people can relate to. But so it takes the senior mature leader who's thinking clearly to say, we need to build an off-ramp here on this training exercise because if we don't, we will increase the probability of somebody getting unnecessarily hurt and increasing the risk and the danger factor of this training mission if we don't take the appropriate actions as a leader. And I don't think we really talk about that much, the whole building an off-ramp and assessing the risk of somebody accomplishing. So it's the risk of accomplishing the mission. <laughs> it's kind of a weird way to say it, but if you don't manage the risk, you will get people who want to accomplish the mission and jeopardize a bunch of different people. You betcha. All of that, you know, I mean, risk, it's differential calculus, right? I mean, it is not a simple thing. There's no such thing as elimination of risk. No, no such thing. That is a completely, totally bullshit theory. Risk is like matter, right? It, it will simply assume a different form. It'll be a gas one day, a water, a solid. It changes. It's our job to, as senior leaders is to look at the, the, the whole landscape, slide it around, move it around based on the, the situation, on the operating environment, everything, and make an appropriate risk assessment. Part of that is, so when we looked at the students and said, your brief sucks, we didn't, you know, captains and majors, we just didn't go to the next step and say, okay, now what's going to be the outcome of this, right? So what you just did is you, you, you know, you, you basically initiated a decision point when you made that statement. The decision point should have been, so what, what do we do about it? We never asked that question. Now, deep down inside, all the instructors knew what was going to happen. We knew the students were going to probably replan this thing and figure it out. Otherwise, you wouldn't have sent somebody over to look to see if they were still awake. Well, that was Stalder. We probably just didn't want to know, right? The young captains were like, you know, Stalder heard about us canceling it. And that's when he walked up and said, hey, I need somebody to go through the BOQ tonight and make sure that we got people getting crew rest. So I don't have a hundred pilots coming in here tomorrow exhausted. You know, that goes back to, you know, my, my experience when I got to, when I got my squadron into Iraq, we were flying missions, routine assault support requests that were landing at three in the morning at the end of an extended crew day. And I'm like, what the f are we doing? This is not, I mean, we've been taught as WTIs and night systems instructors that the, the physiological nadir, that's the low point, right? It's inescapable. It is two to four in the morning. And no matter what you do to yourself, you're not going to, you can't offset. And yet here we are flying routine, not immediate, not emergency, routine ASRs landing at three o'clock in the morning at the end of a long extended crew day. So we, we changed it. That was a cathartic event for us, for the wing forward to do that. But we did. We could do a whole podcast episode on on risk assessment and risk mitigation, especially in the, I mean, you could, especially in the aviation community. I remember uh, halfway through my career, they invented this thing. I think the army invented it and then somebody decided it was a good idea that we do it too. Those risk assessment matrixes. It's just a piece of paper. Yeah. Yep. So when I was a lieutenant in the artillery community, we just rolled to the field. The CO gave a brief on the front of his Humvee on the back of an MRE box and we rolled. I mean, that was, that was how we did it. And everything about risk was covered in the five paragraph order and that was it. And then all of a sudden I come back as a battery commander and you can't even check a range out without doing right. this risk assessment thing. And I'm like, 
I, I remember thinking to myself, because I was half a civilian at this point now because I've, I was a reservist and dealt with risk in my civilian job all the time, financial risk. And so I'm looking at this, I'm like, this isn't mitigating any risk. This mm-hmm. is just checking an administrative block. Policy. Right. It's bad policy. You can't check out the range from Mr. Smith, the civilian person that range control on Fort Campbell, blah, 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 blah. If you don't fill this risk assessment form out right, you can't check the range out. I'm like, all right, that's not mitigating risk. So that gets back to your policies. I think you said OPNAV and then, and then the laws. The, those are policies that need to be challenged. And that is the keeper of the kingdom thing at range control. Like, you know, I'm in charge of this. And boy, we really just need to do a better job of, of looking at some of these stupid things that we're doing because it makes people want to avoid challenging policies and continuing with these inefficient things. And, and I don't think it really mitigates risk. As a matter of fact, as a workaround, you may actually be increasing risk. No question. You betcha. You betcha. It's, it's a whole, we could do a whole podcast on yep. risk. I do want to transition over because I think it, it's, this is a really interesting question to ask aviators because you deal with the probability of death happening in a training environment at a much greater level than, say, an infantry platoon commander does. Your analogy about the AST exercise and the crew rest and everything. I mean, no, no infantry officer would say, we're not going to go do this night range because everybody's tired, right? The grunts just operate when they're tired all the time. They're, they're operating on the, hey, just don't run in front of the muzzle of another weapon and you're not going to get shot kind of safety, okay? Which is all very common sense. Crew rest in the aviation community is a lot different. You and I, unfortunately, share a story about a tragedy that happened in the aviation community. I'm going to let you tell the story and then I'll, I'll jump in. But I want you to tell the listeners the story about your very first experience with an aviation death, because I think it's important for young leaders to, to understand that, that there's a high probability, especially in the aviation community, that they're going to see a death in training and or in combat. And I feel like there is a, there is a lot of benefit to be gained by pre-thinking through how you will react in the face of either bad news or witnessing it. I think there's a lot of power in, it's hard to say imagine, but I'm not going to search for a better word, but thinking through how you will react and actually seeing it in your mind. And I'm asking you to share that story with us because I think it would be instructive to a young leader to hear. Sure. So just for everybody listening, David David and I had a phone call before we did the podcast and we realized somehow quite quite inadvertently that we shared a very close friendship with a, with a buddy that we lost, uh, a guy named Kerry Smith. So he went through TBS with me and we get to flight school. Kerry lived with a bunch of friends. We all stayed close. He was killed in an, in an accident. I think he was in VT6. So, you know, at this point, you're 22, 23 years old, right out of the basic school, going through flight school. And I think we'll all remember how we thought, or if you're that age now, you think you're 10 feet tall and bulletproof. And when you lose somebody close and you see it up close and personal, like my wife went over and helped the roommates, you know, clean out his chest of drawers, right? All his clothes, all the the small things like where's his car, you know, the things that really, until that happens to you, it, it becomes real. For me, losing carry was the, that realization that, you know, I am flesh and blood. And if, if somebody makes a mistake, which is what caused the mishap here for him and killed him and the instructor pilot that, you know, think bad, bad things will happen. So all I will say is for anybody is to, first of all, to, have your affairs in order always. It's an important thing for somebody. Um, and as a leader, you should set the example for your folks. And if you have mar- Marines that work for you or sailors, you need to sit down with them and, and discuss those kind of things. Because again, it, I've been a CACO too, a, a casualty assistance calls officer. 
for a, losing a very close friend of mine. And I will tell you what would otherwise seem like the most mundane decision to you for that spouse, for that family member, it is anything but. But here's what I will tell you. If there's something from you written down saying how you want something done, it will make all the difference in the world. But for Carrie, it was, uh, you know, and then I ended up being a Paul Bear in his funeral. And so that was a big point in my life. And then oddly enough, literally two weeks later, I was flying in a T-34, getting ready to go, you know, one of my final flights. And we, we got vectored into an embedded thunderstorm. And I literally thought I was going to die. I mean, I thought it was, I actually, I was in the front seat of the T-34. The instructor was in the back. I couldn't tell if that it's too long of a story to tell, but I actually was going to try to bail out of the aircraft in a thunderstorm, which is a, <laughs> that's a, oh, wow. that's, you don't do that, right? You, the parachute's just going to wrap around you. But I remember I went through, this is a funny point. The second we got into this thunderstorm, I did the thunderstorm penetration procedures, which was one of them was pull the ice bypass handle on the engine. I don't even remember doing it, but I did. And that's what they said kept the engine running. We, we ended up landing in, in Hurlburt Field. Couldn't make it back to Pensacola because of the storm. And they flew. The airplane was beat to shit. Canopy was crazed. The wings were dimpled. And it was you and an instructor pilot. Yep. Yep. Oh, yep. Wow. And then and the instructor pilot was so, he was, a P, he was a P3 pilot in the Navy. He was so exhausted by the time we got through this thing that I had to do the landing at Hurlburt. He couldn't land the airplane. He was done physically a wreck because we were in this thing for, we think 20 minutes, but at one point I can't hear him in the headset in my helmet. So I'm assuming he's bailed out. <laughs> so I lower my seat. I'm going to bail. I'm preparing to pull the canopy and I'm going to jump. And as I do that, I pulled the, the, the thrust control lever, the TCL, which is the gas pedal. I pulled it back. You know, it's up on the, by the can- And all of a sudden I saw it go forward again. I'm like, <laughs> cause he's in the back and he's on the radio. My helmet had gotten ripped apart. Uh, the, 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 it was so violent. It had pulled my connection out of my helmet. So all that kept going through my mind, David was Carrie wow. was thinking about Smitty. And I thought, and I told you that at his funeral, my wife tells me that she's pregnant with my first kid. It was like a big chill movie, man. So all that's in my head. Right. And here I am. I'm like, this is, this is it. This is how it's going to end for me. Right. That was a pivotal point in my, in my life too, because, um, after that funeral, which, which I was at with you, we just didn't know each other. Yep. We were also together probably at 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yes, at, at Monterey Jacks. That's right. Yes, and <laughs> yes. A- anybody listening from my ROTC days is already uh, laughing. But yeah, I went in that next Monday and I walked into my MOI's office and I turned in my guaranteed flight contract on the spot. Oh, no shit. That was it. Mm-hmm. Well, well, see. that. And, and, and he was an aviator too. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, he just said, you know, you, you understand you're, you're turning in your flight contract that you just worked three years to get all the stuff and had to go down to Pensacola and do a, a flight and fab and all that stuff. As a matter of fact, you were talking about the evacuation procedures out of the T-34. I mean, I still remember it's crew canopy cord, hose, harness, crouch dive, pull, right? So when you <laughs> said you thought your, your IP had punched out of the back, I'm like, well, he violated the first, he just, yep. I'm yep. out of here, right? Yep. yep. So, but that was it. And, uh, and he said, you know, you're going to be a, a ground officer, Armstrong. I'm not so sure you have the personality for it. And I was like, yes, we'll see. So <laughs> that's amazing. Know. 28 years later, Artillery Armstrong was, you know, retiring, but it's tough. I, I think that every leader who sticks around long enough is going to have to process losing somebody that they know. And, and those obviously have a different range of emotional involvement, but I think it's incumbent upon every single leader to think about the fact that they're going to have to do that. And like you said, I, the thing I wrote down was that, you know, making sure that you have your, your affairs in order 
and then setting the examples of leadership and leader and supervising those things is is really really important. It really is important. It really is. So thanks for sharing that story with us, sir. I appreciate that. Absolutely. I want to shift gears a little bit. This is I, I have no segue here, so I'm just gonna I'm I'm just straight up shifting gears here. I just mentioned a couple of times in the past 15 minutes about the reserves. I'm wondering if I can ask you a few questions about the Marine Corps reserves. I don't know if you ever served as an INI or if you ever deployed with any reservists or anything like that. No, but I will tell you in, in 02, when I was the, I was the XO of a, of an aviation combat element out with a Mew, we ended up doing OIF. This is right after nine 11. And, uh, our, our 53 debt was a reserve debt, HMH seven seventy two. I'm curious as I shift into some force design conversation and given your billet where you are right now, what role did the reserves play in the future force? And, and especially in the context of force design 2030? Well, I think reserve force is, is an integral part of the Marine Corps. Differentiating between the two is unnecessary. I think they, you know, they, because we use reserves. I, I mean, I had a reserve one star that worked for me when I was a MEF commander that covered down on everything. And if I had not had him there, it would have been a huge, huge gap. I will tell you going forward, one of the things we've learned, you know, Dave, and I know you interviewed General Bellin, you know, he is a brilliant guy. And I, really what I've learned over the last few years, even before I got to this job, is the things that Marines do, what the, the experiences and the exposures they get when they leave the Marine Corps and go back into the civilian world like you did, the stuff they bring back to the Marine Corps with those experiences is on orders of mag- It benefits us by orders of magnitude. So like we're, we're going to stand up this Marine Innovation Unit, right? Up in New York. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, that's what we're basically absolutely targeting is that whole process of what the, what these, you know, you're, you're a Marine. I don't care what happens, right? You're, once you, once you earn the Eagle Globe and Anchor, it's yours for the rest of your life. So when you go out and get these exposures and you do whatever it is you do, all of that is just kind of glommed on to the core of who you are, which is a Marine. Then when you're a reservist and you come back to the Marine Corps, because you're still a Marine, you bring all those things with you, all the perspectives, and it's just incredibly beneficial in ways that are much bigger than just force design, right? The reason I asked the question is because of- these days, the reserves are, are a lot different than when you and I were, were younger. I think there was a period of time when I spent in the reserves prior to 9-11 where they really weren't all that great at their job. Post 9-11, I think a lot of that changed. And now leaders are coming into the reserves as second lieutenants. And then obviously on the enlisted side, they enlist right into the reserve. They don't even go on active duty. So there are leaders out there that listen to this podcast and they're straight up reservists. Officers come into second lieutenants now into the into the reserve structure, and so I, I do think that that poses some leadership challenges. But I think what would really encourage more leaders in the reserves is is hearing like you know here's the role that the reserves. You're not just a weekend warrior. Oh no, I hate that term, but I'm just going to call it that because most people know what that means. You are truly going to be integrated as not a strategic reserve anymore, but an operational reserve. And that's a different- It is. Those may sound like just words, but they're not. They're not. Literally almost every day in my current billet, reserves come up in a number of possible ways. But I will tell you, most often it's in, we bring up reserves because they're a solution. We literally have exhausted all solutions on the active duty side and the reserves end up being our solution. Right now, there's several issues going on in, in force design where we're, we are actively looking at reserve forces as the, the solution, the only solution. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, for, for anybody listening to this that's a reservist, I mean, you, your value and, and contribution to what we're doing in the Marine Corps is just going to continue to, is, especially over the next 
10 years as we work through force design, right? And we get to 2030 and beyond, but it's not going to stop there. I think the reserves are going to are going to play a critical role in that. You guys are almost like the last line of defense, the safety net. When we can't, when we have no other place to go, we will turn to the reserves and, and look for solutions. I would assume that with force design change, it's it's you're not even going to be looking to them. You're going to be just integrate. They're just going to be integrated. Absolutely. They're going to be part of the force design solution and and not, hey, we need you. Get your shit together like the old days. Absolutely. Yep. So this is my way of saying this. Any shitty comments about them, direct them at me. But my experience in the reserves has always been that the credibility gap starts to really widen as Marines achieve the rank of gunnery sergeant and major, right? So at that point, I think it's really hard to learn how to be a staff officer or a senior NCO when you're only doing one week in a month and two weeks in the summer hmm. compared to your peers on active duty. Any advice to leaders out there who are in that, I'm going to call them major and gunny and above, how can they compress that credibility gap or does it even exist? Maybe maybe I'm just making that up. Well, I mean, what you're talking about essentially, David, is the reps and sets, right? Yeah. Great way to put it. And and there's just no way to, I don't think there's any way to really replace that. So what I would say to any reserve officer or, or senior staff and CO is just awareness, I think, that you know, you need to think back. If you did do active duty time, you need to think back to the officers or staff and COs that were over you that did this all the time, right? That were active duty, and think about the example and of their leadership, and then just kind of do some self reflection and say, "What am I missing because I'm not doing this twenty four seven, right? And I'm not at it twenty four seven." As I said, getting the reps and the sets. I think just self awareness. Here's the here's the dangerous thing: thinking you're all that and you're not, right? That is not helpful. That is the material of bad leadership. Right. If you think you're Mr. Major Heckle is shit hot and you're not, man, you're 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 a force for evil, in my opinion. So there's some humility here and some awareness. And I would say, again, there's in my opinion, there's no replacement for the for the reps and the sets. When you're on drilling or if you're doing your two weeks a year, man, you need to pour your heart and soul into that thing like crazy. And it, then there's always PME, re, reading and yeah. PME which I know, so Marines are good about that. I don't know if that gets after it, but. You know, it does. And I'm just going to punctuate that a little bit, sir, by saying that there is a collaboration taking place right now on social media. I'm, there's, a, there's a lot of different channels of social media. I'm just going to talk about one right now, Instagram. There is, there is a collaboration of skills and knowledge that is being shared in that medium that is so brand new over the past 18 months. It's amazing. And, and I'll just tell people who are leading that are in that major if they're, if they're worried about the credibility gap, start getting on and, and reading some of the things that people are educating. So experts out there, I'll just use an example, people who's, somebody who's a communications expert or a logistics expert, they're out there publishing their knowledge that they have as a, mm-hmm. and wow, I, I have learned more stuff watching and reading some social media accounts about, I'm just going to use the example of communications because I, ha- I have a hobby as a ham radio operator. So I, I, I like to read the comp stuff. And I'm like, gosh, wow, these people are just sharing knowledge. Yeah. So valuable. And it didn't, five years ago, that knowledge share wasn't happening. So I'm, I'm just throwing that out as a quick commercial. As I, well, in your podcast, I mean, like I, listened, I listened to, to Dale and I, well, I think you did one with uh, Milstead. I did. I mean, that, that's fantastic. That's, he was my group commander when I was the XO at that squadron, uh, Colonel, Colonel Milstead. That was a great episode too. I, and I'll tell you one of, my, one of my favorite ones, just a quick commercial, the one with Admiral, Vice Admiral Ron Boxel is fantastic. Oh, I'm going to have to go listen to it. For a leader to hear the sea stories about leadership on a ship underway in an environment that's 
way different than a battalion or a company. I mean, interesting. Being underway on ship is a is a completely different environment where the captain's the king and the personality and the culture of the ship is. Hmm. And he boy, he tells some fantastic stories. I also love the fact that he tells a story about how he punched another officer in the face as a lieutenant and still became a th- you know a vice admiral. So I mean. <laughs> You can get in trouble as an officer and still become yeah. a three-star admiral. I, That's awesome. I've kind of introduced the topic of force design. I do want to take some time to talk about that. I look back on my career and I think about combined arms because that's what that's how artillery thinks about things. And the combined arms of yesterday's, you know, yesterday's combined is always seems to be viewed through the world of, you know, straight on kinetic fires and the traditional combined arms. Think like CACs, linear battle lines and massing fires and moving troops under fire, suppressions, destruction missions. But there are these new domains like the information space, space, actual space, cyber. I mean, these are all new domains that are, they're non-kinetic. And there's a lot of leadership that's taking place in these new areas. And that creates, in my mind, a new dilemma for today on how to actually combine arms by adding in the non-kinetic domains. And that's a challenge. So how do leaders start to train for combining the non-kinetic warfare or domains with the traditional combined arms kinetic mindset? Yeah, I've I've made that comment a few times about the the old think, right? The I think it was Liddell Hart that said the British strategist said the the only thing harder than getting a new idea into a military mind is getting an old one out. <laughs> that's old think, right? And so when when we were dealing with all this criticism of force design, if I saw it once, I saw it a hundred times, you know, cannon artillery, tanks, aviation, combined arms. No. Think about how the engagement sequence we go. Have you heard of find, fix, track, target, engage, assess, right? Yes. F2T2EA. Of those six things I just said, only one is kinetic. Think about that. Find, fix, track, target, engage, and then assess. How does that rubric fit within combined arms. And you, so now maybe space. And so maybe we, need to def, maybe we need to redefine the term kinetic. I would say that some of, the, some of the stuff we'll be doing in space will be quite kinetic. I think some of the results or outcomes of certain cyber actions can be very kinetic. So I think, so it's just like when you talk about escalation, right? The, the definition of escalation to the Chinese is dramatically different than our definition of escalation. So when I think through those things, and, I, and of course, when I'm thinking of off-ramps, that has to be, it's all going to be impacted by understanding of what escalation is. So I, so combined arms is dramatic. It's, it, man, it is, it is so much more than it was uh, years ago. Even, even when you think in terms of cannon artillery or direct action, I mean, those kind of things, that has even changed due to the, ra- the, the ubiquity of sensors, the persistence of sensors, the ability to reach out and hit at distance with precision and timeliness, this whole thing has changed. And so what I would say to a young leader, if you're not smart on cyber, get smart. If you're not smart on information, the information space, get smart. The Marine Corps, you know, we invented these MEF information groups, right? These MIGs, right. Mm-hmm. part of our bid, and they're, they're just doing amazing things. Well, we got, that is a, that's the, the cottage industry, right? There is so much to be done there, so much to be figured out. We're going to be working on this for years and decades. Well, I just listened to a podcast out of the MEF Information Group out of 2MEF yesterday, their uh, inaugural podcast. So they're, they're on it down there uh, if you haven't seen that. But that's interesting because it brings you back to the off-ramps thing, right? If, if somebody else's idea of escalation is different than ours, how do you build off-ramps for something like that? 
you kind of opened up the door on this next question a little bit when you talked about you know some of the legacy systems and stuff. But given the disagreements recently that have obviously been aired in the press by some of the retired general officers and, and some other high-profile former Marines, how does a young leader explain to their Marines that General Berger's vision for changing our force design is something that they need to embrace and train to? And I'll have some follow-up questions for you after that. Look, criticism's always good. Mm-hmm. So the retired general officers that, and, I, and I've said it a hundred times, we probably could have done a better job, you know, put myself on report for maybe explaining some of this better earlier to perhaps maybe have assuaged some of the concern. My issue with it is is the method with how they went about it. And I'll just leave it at that. I don't want to. Okay. There's only one commandant at a time. And, you know, you're you're certainly entitled to your opinions. You're not entitled to your own facts. So when you look at our operating environment, And when you go back and you, as far as leaders talking to young, like NCOs and young Marines about embracing for, and and I'll tell you, I've briefed, I've, I've gone up and briefed, uh, expeditionary warfare school. I've briefed the basic school companies. Oddly enough, the young people get it. I haven't had a fight with any of them. I mean, I had a, I had an auditorium full of 220 captains, no naysayers. They get it. We kind of lost our way for two decades in Iraq and Afghanistan, right? We stopped calling Mm -hmm. them chow hall and war rooms, started calling them defacts. We became a second land army. Acknowledge it. All our shit got big and heavy and fat. We were no more, we became completely shipboard incompatible. We've got generations of aviators that have never operated off the boat. So that's one issue. But as yeah. far as force design, we're not, you know, we're still going to have MEFs. We're going to have three MEFs. The three MEFs have always been different. They have never been the same. The Commandant is simply building a solution to offer to our, our leadership to deal with the Chinese Communist Party and their intention to overturn the international rules-based order that has existed since the end of World War II. And the way he's going about it is absolutely spot on. As far as what we're going to, the equipment we're fielding, the things we're going to, we completely divested of tanks. Totally agree with it, right? Right. Totally, 100% agree with it. All my muse I went on, we always took tanks. They never came off the boat. And the fact is, our, our, our tank force has always been just a drop in the bucket compared to the to the army. And we are operating within the construct of a joint force. I mean, for heaven's sakes, it's the joint war fighting concept that we're, which is classified, which we're fitting within. So for everybody to think that we, you know, I, you know, where you see duplicity that's unnecessary, some duplicity is good, you should eliminate it. But things like long range precision fires, the things that we're bringing, the capability that we're going to bring to, you know, the old tubed artillery, uh, I don't see how you can argue with the capabilities that we're going to be fielding in these units. That's interesting. Uh, you know, part of my time in the reserves was I, I actually did lat move over to the 1802 field back in back in the night. So I, I spent a little bit of time as a tanker. And I think what a lot of people don't understand about the tank and, and its expeditionary nature or lack of expeditionary nature and how it never came off the boat is the logistical tail yeah. of a tank company is massive. Massive. And and the weight of those things. And so you have something that weighs 68 tons and it gets stuck or it breaks down. You were talking, you were telling a story about how the 53 threw the rotor box and you had to fly in some pubs and, and stuff like that. Like, you know, a tank breaks down. You can't just, you got to pull that out with something or abandon right. it. And then you start talking about putting them on ships. I don't want to get off on the tanks too far, but a lot of people just don't understand how, how heavy and burdensome right. they are. I mean, everybody likes the idea of having a tank in the middle of the street in Fallujah. But, you know, if we're going to get back from away from being a second land army, then I see the the light on that 
back to the the questioning. Do you think that some of the debate that's to, I think debate is very healthy. I think arguing is not. And I, I think throwing food at each other across a table is, is not healthy. Totally agree. Do the retired general officers and those folks that are questioning the efficacy and the achievability of these future concepts, does that help us or hurt us with the pacing threat? My personal opinion is I don't think it was helpful. And I, I totally agree with you. I think debate is healthy. Arguing, senseless arguing and, and, and slinging food at one another is, is not. I don't know another time in, in the history of the Marine Corps where we've had retired general officers shooting on these kind of targets before. So I think the really sad part, in my opinion, is it's damaged our brand as a Marine Corps. Marines simply don't do that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Under any circumstances, in my opinion, it's inexcusable. So it's done. I think it's diminished our standing with the American people. I absolutely know it has diminished our standing with with our some of our elected representatives. So from that perspective, it has been it has been entirely unhelpful. And the part that really frustrated me was to my previous comment about you're entitled to your own opinion. You're not entitled to your own facts. Mm-hmm. Some of it simply was not factually based. And I, I can't explain that. It's not my job to explain it. They're the, you know, but it simply is not factually based and easily refutable. That's the frustrating part. With the threat we're facing and the timeline we're facing, we just we don't need anything else that's creating a drag on becoming the force that we need to be to deal with the CCP. And I ask this again from from a leadership perspective because I think it's really important that the record gets straight or at least clarified for young leaders because they're they're going to be the bread and butter, right? They're going to be the people carrying the pack on this thing. There's been some questioning on how the Marine Corps has arrived at some of their conclusions regarding force design. And by that, I mean, the Marine Corps has been accused of just sitting in some classroom and, you know, stroking their chin and making these pronouncements. And uh, I read an article that General Van, Viper, Van Riper specifically said the commandant didn't follow an established process used by the Marine Corps Development Command. Okay, I don't know anything, sir. I don't believe that. I don't believe I don't believe that. It's absolutely 100% not true. 100% not true. We have the majority of this happened prior to me getting here, but but haven't been in this position now for 7-8 months and and seeing where we're going. There have been here here are the facts. There have been 36 IPTs. We have conducted 18 experiments, 30 war games, and 23 studies and analysis. Can you, say, can you just say this one more time so people don't have to rewind? 36 IPTs, mm-hmm. 18 experiments, 30 war games, 23 studies and analysis. We are actively, actively, right now we're in phase three, very heavy experimentation. We are getting FMF feedback, right? So the Fleet Marine Force is giving it, this is, these are the Lance Corporals and the Captains, David. And we are in court. And here's the other point. The Commandant has said all along that this would be an iterative process, that, that this was a journey, not a destination. And I will tell you now, having been in this job, this force design stuff, this is going to go on in perpetuity, right? And by the way, the idea that we haven't been doing it, I heard one of the one of the retired general officers in, in one, some forum, I can't remember which one, kind of said, this campaign of learning, what is that? I went back and pulled documents out of my closet in my office from eight years ago, David, that talk about the campaign of learning. Again, so I don't know where they're getting their information from. I can't explain it. We are absolutely using the process. They're, now, the force design piece is a new thing, right? My command does force development. Now we're doing force design. And I think with the rapid pace of change of technology, and it's not going to slow down, this is going to be an ongoing thing, right? It's not going to stop at 2030. So we're going to keep it going. And, and the commandant, as he said, he, we are going to make changes along the way. We've already done it. You know, the, the infantry battalion 
The lowest number we ever experimented with was 735, an infantry battalion of 735, which, is, by the way, is still bigger than an army battalion. The current size of an infantry, Marine infantry battalion is about 896. After some experimentation feedback from the fleet, we're probably going to go to somewhere around 820 to 830. He initially went down to 14 VMMs, V-22 squadrons. Now we're at 16. Now, we've gone from 12 plane to 10. That actually makes sense because we're going to be employing them in 10 plane squadrons on the Muse because more than likely we're going to try to put more JSF, right, than what we would typically employ. So all of this is working out. And the Commandant is based on feedback, based on experimentation, we're making changes. I love hearing that. I think the reasonings make sense. Here's what I choose to believe, which means this is what I think I know. I think that there's a lot of information out there that people like Dave Armstrong don't have and people like General Zinni and Van Riper, who, by the way, I hold in the highest regard. Me too. And I applaud their, the intent of debate. I applaud that and would encourage them to try to be, continue to try to be helpful in all of this. But I don't think that they're in possession of a lot of information either, just because they probably don't have security clearances. And I, I'm, not, I'm not asking you to get into security stuff. But I'm just saying, I trust people like you and General Berger and the other Marines that are involved in this to be synthesizing some facts that may not be known by everybody and making good decisions because, damn it, that's what Marines do, right? We take the facts and we make good decisions and we, and we, we move on. I'm kind of curious to get your opinion on this. So there's a lot of leaders out there who are challenging Force Design 2030 and everything that the Commandant and you are try, trying to do. And they're saying, this is wrong, this is wrong. And one of them recently said that they didn't think that the Marine Corps would even exist in 2030 if this is fully implemented. I think that was General Van Riper who said that. I understand those words. But here's the question I have, and, I, and I'd love for you to address it. While there's a lot of retired general officers and former Marines who are questioning the Commandant and essentially saying he's wrong, who's asking what happens if those retired general officers are wrong? I, I mean, what if they're wrong, but they're successful in creating what I'll just call an injunction on Force Design 2030? So who's addressing that concern in the public forum? And, and since no one is, will you? Because what if the commandant's right and they're wrong? That's a great point. I am fairly certain that not changing the Marine Corps is a mistake. I, I, I'm, I, I'm, nothing's 100%, right? Sure. The, the only time I, I stay away from, you know, always and, and never as much as I can, unless it's dealing with my faith or my family. But I am pretty damn certain that if, if we don't, change to meet this threat that is literally materialized under our nose mm -hmm. while we were buried in the Middle East with our cannons and our tanks, we are going to not be a viable Marine Corps in any shape, form, or fashion to service the national defense strategy. Now, the national defense strategy is a classified document. I am pretty damn sure that Zinni's read it and the previous administration in 18, the one in 22, very similar, right? Mm -hmm. China is the threat. If you study the operating environment and you study what they're doing and you understand their weapon systems, you understand the reach, you understand what they're doing in space. If we don't change, we don't apply. The Marine Corps will not apply to that theater, period. So we better be content with being the CENTCOM force or the UCOM force. And last time I checked, the Army still got what? 20 times our number of tanks, even when we had a battalion, when we had the battalions. Mm -hmm. To not change, David, is a would be a a fatal error. And look, the Marine Corps, we have historically been the ones that have led change. The Higgins boat, helicopters in Korea, 
we're the ones that lead these things. You know, for heaven's sakes, the, we, we invented the MAL, right? The Marine Amphibious Unit. How about that V-22 thing? V-20. And look, you know, uh, everybody forgets this one. The V-22 was, uh, was an Army program in the late 80s. I didn't even know that. At the first couple of issues, they jumped ship. We stuck with it through some really, really tough times. And look at the aircraft now. Right. And quite frankly, we're a victim of our own success. We can't, we can't meet the demand signal for it, which is why we had to go back to 16 squadrons. We, we literally we need that number of flags to service the combatant commanders, the demand signal, which right. is just so, yeah. So I, again, you know, how the Marine Corps, the Commandant is, is tailoring a force to deal with China. We still have the MEFs. We still are the crisis response force for the nation. We have multiple places where we plug in inside the joint force. What the commandant's simply trying to do is do it wisely. And look, there's not an endless flow of money here. I mean, right. it's just a fact to modernize. The commandant looked at us. You know, it, when I came on active, guess how big the Marine Corps was on September 30th, 2001? Mm, 175. 172,934. So 19 days after 9-11. Guess how big we grew to while we were in Iraq and Two twelve, little yep, just short of two fifteen. Right. Okay. Yesterday I checked, we're we're right at one hundred seventy five thousand. We're okay. about at our fighting weight, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And all the commandant's doing is upgrading and modernizing capability. It, are there structure changes? Yes, that we are going. We are making structural, you know, people personnel changes to accommodate these upgrades. And again, we are tailoring a force, these Marine Littoral regiments. Not every regiment is turning into an MLR. Right now, we plan for three. And we don't even know if that's right. It may not be three. It may be three. It's going to depend on what the MEF commanders tell us. Right. But the rest of the Marine Corps is simply largely staying the same. We have divested of tanks. We still have retained cannon artillery. We actually went, instead of just retaining, we're going to have four batteries on the West Coast, three on the East Coast. And we're actually now, instead of six tubes, are going to eight. Okay. And then we're fielding HIMARS, which will ultimately, the you know, the high-mobility artillery rocket system. That is mm-hmm. going to go to the MLRS, the Multiple Launch Rocket System, which has all, you know, spiral ranges of up to 200 miles, David. You know, so I don't know why you would think this is a bad thing, right? Yeah. And everything we do has to be modernization, right? I mean, it has to be a signature management. Everything we do, because you talked about it, tanks have that logistics tail behind a tank is a signature. It, oh my God. Look what's happening in Ukraine. Look what happened in, in uh, Nurgana uh, Karbakh between the Ar- uh, Armenians and uh, Azerbaijanis. So, signature management is critical. And right. we're, we're, we're kind of getting back to the future, right? Camo netting, it does uh, uh, infrared, it does all kinds. You know, I mean, we're, we're working actively. And across the electromagnetic spectrum, right? You got to be careful about because again, back to the all the domains, right? Are you right. emitting a signature in the information environment, right? Right. This here's why Force Design 2030 is probably so exciting and popular with the young leaders because you're telling them to get back to childhood hide and seek, right? You're exciting these young leaders about like, hey, we are going to expect you to go out into these physical domains, hide, keep your signature level low report, use technology. That is all exciting. That's all exciting to a young leader. And now if I was a colonel, I'd be like, you know, it wouldn't be exciting to me because I'm not the guy on the ground anymore. And I also look at this technology and I think to myself, and now I'm putting my 
my very limited tanker hat on and I'm thinking to myself, my gosh, I mean, hey, sir, if you and I jumped into a pickup truck with eight javelins, we could probably do as much damage as a tank company could do just the two of us, two old men together in the back of a pickup truck, right? Maybe right. get some young guy to drive it. But I mean, the technology has completely changed. I wouldn't want to be in a tank anymore. I'd rather be in a razor. So completely, David. You, you know, these, so what, the, what happened in Nagorno-Karabakh with the, the employment of loitering munitions, you know, you're, you know, a shaped charge coming down on top of a tank. It just they were killing in the, at will. And that's exactly what has happened. And, you know, so we're, we're, that's going to be the future in the Marine Corps, the, the loitering munitions. The long range, precision, persistent. I mean, imagine a loading munition being launched, basically orbiting for 45 minutes to either obtain target data or refine it and then kill some, right? But the whole time it's doing it, it's just ga- gathering additional intel. Infra- right. It's amazing. And this is not expensive stuff. It's not exquisite stuff. So we're, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and, and I'll throw out another example of, of one of the things we're toying with forces on. What does LAR next look like in the Indo-Pacific? It doesn't have vehicles. I mean, yeah. So in LA, so in LAV 25, you know, when you, and when you lay out the first island chain, the Ryukus, all the way Luzon, all the way down to, to Palawan. And I mean, we're, we're talking about 2000 miles of islands, of archipelagos. Right. What is an LAV 25 going to do? Nothing. Put those guys onto two razors. From a reconnaissance perspective, right? I, I envisioned something like a lot of unmanned systems, a multi-domain recon element on an EAB somewhere with all these long range capabilities, surface, subsurface, air that can go out hundreds of miles and sense, gain and maintain custody of targets. That's what, so just think LAVs and tanks. It just doesn't apply to the Indo-Pacific operating environment. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit. Right. You had said something before about how the, the HIMARS is going to be transitioning more over to the MLRS. You weren't referring to the actual track vehicle that the Army has its MLRS, right? We're not going to that. No. Okay. The future of MLRS is something called the MLRS family of munitions. And it will go on the back of a JLTV, but it, the, the pod will be similar. And uh, they've got uh, some really, really capable weapon systems. Right. Just wanted to clarify that for, for listeners. One more quick comment on the LAR community, because this is kind of, this became interesting to me. When did you come in the Marine Corps? Or mid eighties, early eighties? 88. 88. Okay. Active duty in 88. So the LAR community was already around. It was the LAI community. But here's my question for you. You may not know the answer. Where did they come from? Where did those three battalions come from? I don't know the answer to that. I don't think they existed. It's not like we transitioned an MP company over to LAR. That's a good point. We have in our very recent history created units with new technology and new gear and said, look at that. And I don't hear anybody complaining that we created new units and new technology to do new special things in the LAR community. I'm going to find that out and get, I'm going to get an answer back to you because I'm now I'm curious. Yeah. It just dawned on me that I don't know if we reconstituted battalions into the LAR community. I think we created them out of scratch and we said, here's this great new technology, go out and do LAR things. And they did, right? Desert Seal, Desert Storm, oh, yeah. the March yeah. Up. I mean, fantastic, but maybe they're not as relevant, I mean, I don't know if they totally go away because if you ever had to go back into the desert, but if we're trying to get away from being the second land army, but still do a reconnaissance mission, why does the reconnaissance mission have to be based around a legacy vehicle? Why can't it be based around a concept? So again, so David, yeah, right. To the, to the point that I made earlier about all the muse, all three, I mean, all the myths, all three myths have always been different. Right. Always. So why now all of a sudden are, you know, for some of the criticism it's kind of focusing on the, the point that we're tailoring MEFs. I mean, three MEF is the stand-in force, right? They right, live, they're there. sleep, eat, train inside the weapons engagement zone of the Chinese Communist Party. 
Mm-hmm. So, but one of the things we're talking about within force design, within these IPTs, and, and we, we've had, this has actually been a subject of an IPT, a MU. I would say that a MU still requires a reconnaissance vehicle. So right now we have three industry partners or prototyping BAE with, you know, the new ACV. Are you familiar with the new ACV, the amphibious combat vehicle? I am. Yes. I've seen the, pictures the, of it. Okay. The, which is a fantastic vehicle. They're looking at a variation of the ACV to be a, to be LAV next, right? And okay. then we have Textron and I think we have General Dynamics doing it. So we're going to, because we're talking about an amphibious reconnaissance vehicle, an ARV, right? What's next? So maybe, maybe for the Muse, you still require that, right? I think you probably do. Mm-hmm. So the point is, we're we're not just trying to cookie cut, you know, use a cookie cutter set here of that applies force design across all operating environments and across all MEFs because it doesn't work. I know we're coming up on the end of the time here. I do have one last question. It's it's a little more of a under a microscope question as it relates to young leaders. But how does a brand new NCO or or lieutenant specifically train to this this new mission that's going to come out of force design? When all of the schoolhouse trainers have no experience in this new concept, will will the initial young leaders out there have to make it up as they go along? And if so, any thoughts on how they can set themselves and their Marines and their units up for success? Or is there already a plan in place? Like I, I'll use TBS as an example. I don't know if any captains who are instructing at TBS right now have, I know they don't have any experience in impl- implementing what could be a base unit in force design out in 3MF. How do those lieutenants learn? So great point. What I'll bring that back to is all the extensive experimentation we're doing right now. Okay. The experimentation is under the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab, which is also the Futures Directorate. And we gather all the lessons learned and we churn that back into the campaign of learning. And the campaign of learn- learning is all that experimentation is the analytical rigor that under underpins every single decision the commandant makes on force design. So those Marines out in the fleet that are doing this, so, and I don't know if you knew this, but have you heard of IBX, Infantry Battalion Exercise? Yeah, but explain it for listeners. The Commandant designated one battalion in all of the MEFs to do some variation of force design experimentation with the infantry battalion. That is what's feeding all this. It's been going on for the last year. It's still going. We had one out on a MU. We had one one out with the 11th MU. So this is real world. These are real Marines. These are NCOs, young officers that will inform our organization on how to do this. And then and then a little bit of it, David, is going to be kind of discovery and learning, We're going to, as it always sure. is, right? And you can't be fearful of that. And that's why the commandant has said, don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to fail. That's how we're going to learn. So right. we're going to experiment a lot. We're going to iterate. And then we're going to learn. And we're going to keep going. I'll come back to the LAR community on that. Right. The LAR community popped up out of nowhere. Where did that expertise come from? Where did those master gunners come from on that on that chain gun? Where did those lieutenants and captains come from? I think it was probably a lot like the Hal Moore movie with, uh, you know, we were soldiers once where all of a sudden he lands a helicopter and says, this is our new horse. This is what we're riding into battle. Exactly. Right. They're like, okay, let's go figure it out. I mean, that's actually probably a pretty good example of, okay, let's just go back to the 101st Airborne or, you know, or the, I'm sorry, first calf, first calf. Yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, they got helicopters. That's and right. Like, go, go, figure it out. Yeah. And, and hey, if the army can figure out how to create a full division out of helicopter-mounted soldiers, I know the Marine Corps can figure out force design twenty thirty. And we're wrapping up here. I, I normally do a recap, and I'm not because I this has been such a fascinating conversation. I want to give you a little bit more platform to talk, but I can understand why this is so exciting for young leaders in the Marine Corps. 
okay, do you remember being at TBS and some general stood up in front of you and said, I would give anything to be in your seat. I'm having that moment right now, like just wishing I was sitting back at TBS. Absolutely. What a great time. What a great time to be in. What a great time to be a creative thinker. What a great time to be a decision maker. What a great time to be in charge. Sir, something just dawned on me that, you know, as a three-star general, you've got a staff and you've got a lot of officers that come in. And I think we'd all be silly to assume that every single officer out there agrees with Force Design 2030 or may have some questions that haven't been answered yet. And I mean, questions are great, but it just dawned on me that some of those officers could be coming to work for you on your team, on your staff. What, what would you say to some officers who are coming to CD&I who maybe aren't totally sold on Force Design or have a lot of questions or, or flat out disagree with it, but yet have to come in and work on a project with you? Yeah. So, you know, I, I would bet that even the commandant is not 100% sold on Force Design. He's a critical thinker. He looks at things every day. I would say that Force Design, the ideas driving Force Design may have changed on February 25th of this past year, you know, the day after Russia invaded a sovereign nation. I simply bring that example up to say that every day brings new pressures to bear that may alter your opinion or view on some portion or all of force design. All I will tell you is that when I was a sitting wing commander, you know, we were talking about cutting aviation. My initial gut reaction was that's not good. But then the more I started getting into actual force design and learning force design, I realized there was actually, actually analytical underpinnings to why we were doing this and where we were going. So all I would say is that anybody that were to come work for me, you know, I don't want a yes man. I want somebody that's going to come on board and question and ask questions. Again, that goes back to the commandant's point from the very beginning. Don't be afraid to fail. The commandant told all of us, question everything. And that's what we do. So, and I think by virtue of coming, if if you had a young field grade check-in, get some job that maybe he or she doesn't completely wholeheartedly agree on, what I'll bet you money is, as you work through the process, within a month or two, you're going to realize everything the Marine Corps is doing and how well we're doing it and how we're approaching it from a campaign of learning that you're going to get on board. It'll be, it'll be a natural, it'll be a natural uh, outflow of, of, of how the process works. That's great. So, David, look, I mean, it, you know, my closing comments were going to be, you've made them for me. First of all, the future for our Marine Corps is incredibly strong and bright. There is no, we've, you know, and I, I know this isn't necessarily that big of a deal to maybe the listeners, but on Capitol Hill, there is no divide between parties. They, they support what we're doing because they understand the problems that we're getting after and that we're trying in our best ability within our, within our financial authority to build a force that meets the national defense strategy for our nation. We've got absolute serious inertia and momentum going on the Hill. So it is the, the future of the Marine Corps is very, very exciting. Just like you said, that was the words I was going to use. And for any young leader coming in, this is a great time to be coming in to the Marine Corps. It's exciting. I do believe we are at an inflection point. I really do believe that. They happen every now and then in an organization's history. We are at one. The rate, pace, and scale, breadth, scope of technological change is breathtaking, and the Chinese are taking us to task. And if we don't get serious, you know, at some point, it's going to be hard to get back there, right? right. So this is an exciting time. We're, we are offering the joint force an extremely unique capability, and we are going to be punching well above our weight class what we're going to bring. Having that force out there, sensing, making sense, collecting data, refining that data, and ready to strike when the nation decides, if it ever comes to that, 
we will be prepared. And all the while, remaining our for our the nation's force and readiness. We have got to get back to nonstop Marine Expeditionary Units deployment because it's a volatile world, right? Right. Who would have thought this time last year we would have Russia invading a sovereign nation and committing war crimes? The dynamic nature of our of our world requires a strong, strong country, and we have to be ready to respond. And so China aside, we need Marines out deployed 24-7 on ships, on sovereign U.S. territory, ready to do the nation's tasking whenever it's required. So it's an exciting time to be a Marine, and force design is going to be, uh, I think we're going to look back from a historical perspective, and the Marine Corps is going to get a lot of credit for getting it right. I agree. Sir, as a quick wrap-up question, when I get into arguments with my family, I'm right, they're wrong, they're right, I'm wrong. Somebody has to extend an olive branch in order to become a family again. Is there a way to bring some of the people who have been dissenters back into healthy debate and back into the relationship to create the Marine Corps of the future? And if so, who extends that olive branch and how can it be done? Can that be facilitated? I think it can. I really do. I think right now, so like we're going to have a retired EOS. Um, Not long ago, the, the Assistant Commandant of the Marine Corps had an evening parade for I think we had about a half a dozen retired assistant commandants of the Marine Corps. There are actually that many of them alive. It was it was amazing. I was I was there at the reception and talked to several of them. I mean, you, I mean, General Morgan, ninety six years old, sharp as as if he were thirty, and General Boomer was there. I mean, the value of their perspective, the value of of their experiences is needed. So I think to answer your question, I think we are. And I won't even say extending olive branches. We're, tr- we're, we're trying to bring the family back together again. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's going to work. So again, we're going to do a retired EOS, executive offsite, with a bunch of retired three stars. I don't know how many will come, but we will have these open and active discussions within the family. And then hopefully we will all agree at the end that uh, at the end of the day, we're all still Marines. And right. we're all still in this Marine Corps thing. And this is how we're going forward. I think one of the things that's, always been great about the Marine Corps is we can close a door in a conference room and, and, and have it out. I mean, have it out. And then when the conference door opens and the CEO walks out, everybody says, this is what we're doing. Always, always. And I'm just going to end it with, I think that's one of the things that makes us so special as a Marine Corps. And I hope we get back to that. Amen. I completely agree, David. Sir, thanks so much for taking your time out of your busy schedule to talk to me about. No, nah, David, this was freaking great, brother. Thank you. It really was. Your, your leadership lessons and your experience are so sage. And, and I just know that, that young leaders listening to this are going to get a lot out of that. And in sort of in a non-traditional format, we had a great conversation about force design because I do think that's really important for young leaders to actually understand yeah. some of the things. And, and you, Here's one example you said that I'm just going to use as a recap, which was really interesting. You were talking about how we're going to, the, the VMMs were going from, you know, down in size, and then you're going to go from 12 planes to 10 planes. And on the surface, it's like, okay, we're losing two. But then you said, but that's because we need to get more joint strike fighters onto the MU. We need to, and great. So now all of a sudden, ding, light goes off. I'm like, okay, I get it. You may be losing two pieces of combat power from the V-22 planes, but you're adding more come. And isn't it all about the MU and not about the squadron? It's about the MAGTAF. Right, exactly. There you go. Perfect conclusion. So for those people listening, definitely check out some of the show notes. I'm going to post that reference to the Somali evacuation in there and definitely hit some comments up. But sir, really appreciate your 
time and energy and uh, from your staff too, who put this all together for us. This has been extremely informative and, and I really appreciate getting to know you personally too. Yeah. Thank you, David. And I hope to meet you, man. So I hope future. so too. We will make yeah. that happen, sir. We will, uh, like I said, cigars and bourbon and golf are, are my top three hobbies. Perfect. We are perfectly aligned. Great. All right, sir. Great to meet you. And thanks again to your team and your staff. They're, they're all serious professionals. You betcha, David. Thanks, brother. I look forward Thank to it. Thank you. Take care.